This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a press conference the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Information and Technology held last week. The participants of the media roundtable were Dr. Neil Evans, the Chief Officer for Connected Care, and who is performing the delegable duties of the Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and Chief Information Officer. Todd Simpson, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for DevSecOps. Charles Worthington, the Chief Technology Officer. Paul Cunningham, the Chief Information Security Officer. Paul Brubaker, the Deputy CIO for the Account Management Office. And LaWanda Jones, the Deputy CIO in the Office of Strategic Sourcing. First, we hear from Dr. Evans, who's performing the delegable duties of the Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and CIO. I am excited to be here today. I have uh, recently assumed the role of the Acting Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and Chief Information Officer, which is a long mouthful there, but I've assumed that role soon after, not long after my 20th year was marked in VA. I've been here since I finished my medical residency. I started out as a primary care provider at the Washington, D.C. VA Medical Center, where I am still taking care of some of the same patients I started taking care of 20 years ago. I have been involved in information technology, healthcare information technology for many years here within the VA in various leadership roles in VHA most recently, leading our connected care portfolio within VA. I can say that I have experienced firsthand the transformation that our organization has been working its way through from a digital perspective. I am incredibly proud of the leadership team that uh, is here to answer your questions today, who are driving really a modernization effort and a a digital transformation effort across VA, which has seen really considerable momentum, including over the pandemic. In fact, I think we've only accelerated our digital transformation over the pandemic, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that over the course of today. I mean, just to give you a sense of the example, the transition to remote work for our employees, you'll hear about that if you're interested. We've now delivered more than 12.5 million telehealth visits over the course of the pandemic, a massive increase. I imagined very significant telehealth growth within the department, but I I couldn't quite imagine these numbers, at, at least at this point in time. And underneath of all of that, supporting this key mission, you know, the, our, our mission within the VA is to care is to fulfill President Lincoln's promise to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan by serving and honoring the men and women who are America's veterans. Driving that mission, supporting that mission, we're here in the Office of Information Technology, supporting really all of the key stakeholders within VA, the Veterans Health Administration, the Veterans Benefits Administration, the National Cemetery Administration, as we we, um, deliver as we support those organizations executing on their mission. We're doing so by concentrating on building a state-of-the-art IT workforce to partnering with industry and really throughout government as we identify um, through our Office of Strategic Sourcing how best to meet the requirements of the agency. We're working on novel and innovative new technologies to move the agency forward in delivering services to veterans, enhancing the experience of veterans as they engage with us for care, 
and also increasing the efficiency of our operations within VA. So a lot of exciting, a lot of exciting activity happening within IT, within VA's digital strategy, and we look forward to talking about that with you. So I'll turn things over to you for your questions. Kat Jersich, Healthcare IT News. I've done quite a bit of reporting as of late on the VA's um, expansion of telehealth for veterans. And I'm curious if you could give an update on um, how that telehealth expansion has taken place and whether you can offer any kind of sneak peek into the next year or two, especially given the somewhat uncertain landscape in terms of congressional support for telehealth. Telehealth has been mission critical for VA long before the pandemic. We need to deliver care to veterans regardless of where they are in this country. And telehealth has been a critical part of our strategy to increase the accessibility of healthcare, to make it easier for veterans to connect with their provider, whether that be uh, from home or by delivering telehealth care through one of our community clinics, getting a patient connected to a specialist who may be in an urban area at one of our larger medical centers. So again, making access, enhancing accessibility. Um, also telehealth has been a critical part of our strategy in increasing the efficiency or the capacity of our healthcare system to meet the needs of the veterans that we serve. One of the great parts of the VA operates a fully integrated healthcare system. So one of, one of the things that telehealth allows us to do is somewhat unique within the federal government is to connect veterans with providers who are there to meet their needs, kind of regardless of their location. If we don't have a specialist in a given market, we can connect by telehealth that patient uh, to a specialist elsewhere in our system, which helps us operate more efficiently. In addition, telehealth has been an important part of our strategy to increase the quality of care that we deliver, often providing added resources on top of in-person care. The example I like to use is our telecritical care program, which has been deployed at more than 30% of our ICU beds, and that number continues to increase. In fact, during the pandemic, we were able to, to quickly migrate to providing some coverage to 100% of our intensive care unit beds. We have two uh, critical care hubs where critical care specialists in, in Minneapolis and Cincinnati are, are 24 hours a day, seven days a week, providing monitoring and oversight and support for the on-the-ground intensive care teams at our local facilities. So again, telehealth can add value on top of in-person care. Our commitment to telehealth was strong before the pandemic, and it was on that foundation that we were able to build such a significant increase. I mentioned 12.5 million telehealth visits over the course of the pandemic thus far. Um, and I would say we've supported from an IT perspective the infrastructure necessary to scale that telehealth delivery very quickly. I'll give you two examples. First, we're delivering care into patients' homes via our telehealth application VA Video Connect prior to the pandemic. But we were doing about 2,000 visits per typical business day. And our IT infrastructure was built to support that kind of clinical volume with some overhead to cover particularly busy days. Uh, within a few months of the beginning of the pandemic, 
we were seeing 25,000, 30,000, and now higher than 40,000 visits per day. The need to rapidly scale that IT infrastructure was something that this team took on and just ran with velocity. That involved migrating portions of our telehealth solution to the cloud. That involved a lot of coordination um, with training new users to use the, the system and, and serve a lot of other factors to drive that growth. The second example I, I already mentioned was telecritical care, where we were able to rapidly scale through portable telehealth monitoring stations that we were able to deploy to all of their intensive care units around the country. Again, the IT team had to support getting those connected, getting them on the network, assuring high reliability function, but we were able to get the technology out to allow for support um, and monitoring and, and extra support from a critical care perspective for all of our intensive care units. Which gets to the second part of your question, Kat, and that was, you know, where are we going? And I think, you know, we in the VA, some of the questions around telehealth and, and reimbursement that are often thought about in the private sector uh, are not as much of a concern within the VA. For us, this is about how do we deliver care as an integrated healthcare system. So if you were to ask me to predict, uh, are we going to go back to pre-pandemic volumes of telehealth delivery? No. We now have a whole over 95% of our primary care providers, mental health providers, and high numbers of our specialty providers have delivered care through telehealth. It's now something that they 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 can do. It is something that is part of their therapeutic choices, what they can offer to patients. And I think we're going to continue to see growth there. Um, we're going to continue to see growth in inpatient applications of telehealth and engagement of veterans through technologies closer to where they are. We have to take a break. You're listening to an excerpt of a press conference the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Information and Technology held last week. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt from a press conference the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Information and Technology held last week. The participants in that media roundtable were Dr. Neil Evans, the Chief Officer for Connected Care, and who is performing the delegable duties of the Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and CIO. Todd Simpson, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for DevSecOps. Charles Worthington, the Chief Technology Officer. Paul Cunningham, the Chief Information Security Officer. Paul Brubaker, the Deputy CIO for the Account Management Office. And Lawanda Jones, the Deputy CIO in the Office of Strategic Sourcing. Next, I'll move to Jenna Sindel, Government Technology Insider. You mentioned briefly that the cloud really allowed scalability and the VA to meet um, the rapid change of pace that came with the pandemic. What are some of the other foundational technologies that have enabled the VA to support remote work, telehealth, and the delivery of other constituent services? I think what you're asking is what kind of technologies have really helped us move the needle, not just migration to the cloud, but also support for remote work and the like. I think I'll start with Charles. Charles, why don't you give us a... Hey, yeah, it's a great question. And the the cloud, I think, was a key enabler, but just kind of one of several that helped VA be quite responsive to these unique challenges. The cloud in particular helped us scale capacity more rapidly than we would have been able to if we were trying to add capacity solely on-premise. And so for telehealth in particular, 
When we first started off scaling, that was all around adding capacity to our internal data centers. And we were keeping up with demand with that, but we created the ability to burst that capacity into our enterprise cloud, which gave us uh, basically unlimited ability to scale our backends. So that's, that's a good example of how cloud helped with uh, a product that was rapidly scaling in demand. Uh, but you know, the cloud is really, I think, just one component of the broader IT transformation that's been underway for a couple of years to make the IT group more responsive. Uh, kind of the key theme to a lot of these technologies is making it easier to make changes in our environment. And so I think I saw that being deployed really uh, rapidly and across the board in those early days of the pandemic. So things like modern software development tools that do you know source code control and continuous integration and continuous deployment, they were letting our teams go from you know, an idea that somebody had in the field to prototype software to shipped production application in a matter of weeks instead of you know, the typical timeline would be more like months to sometimes years. And uh, having a, a set of tools in place already because of the underway sort of transformation that had been kind of taking place really over the course of the, the past several years, I think really set IT up well to respond to this challenge, even though obviously it was nothing we could have predicted. But the, the whole name of the game, I think, for digital transformation is, is making your environment flexible and easy to change. And those investments really paid off for us across a number of product categories. Yeah, I think I'd add one more as well, uh, I completely agree, Charles, and really, how do you position yourself to move with velocity? And I think that's what Charles is referring to, some of the technologies that allow us to scale with velocity, to, de to, to deliver new capabilities with velocity, to rapidly get product software in front of users to improve the experience. There's also kind of the old school, if you're going to support a transition to remote work, people need the equipment like the laptops, the phones, the equipment in their home to be the actual access to internet, to be able to transition to the remote work. And the number of devices that we effectively deployed and got into the hands of our employee base is pretty astounding. I'd also add that this is not just about um, delivering the endpoints, 225,000 laptops is, I've now found the number um, that we were, um, able to acquire and deploy as indicated by the needs for folks to use those. Um, but it's also about supporting our veterans to get access to the technology. The Office of Rural Health estimates that somewhere just shy of 20, I think it's over 20 percent, um, around 20 percent of veterans, somewhere in there, 20 to 24 percent, don't have access to sufficient internet at home in rural America to connect to VA through telehealth. We were able to deploy over 100,000 iPads directly, loan 100, over 100,000 iPads to veterans to allow them to have a data-enabled device if they didn't have access to a device or sufficient internet to get connected back to the VA as well. So, so this is Lawanda Jones. I also think that you know all of these capabilities behind that is some type of contract action. So we, we had flexible and scalable contract actions, and we also had a very, very excellent uh, partnership with our industry com uh, community during the time. And so that also uh, helped us understand the supply chain, if there were any challenges and how to mitigate those challenges. 
I'd, I'd like to make a comment on that. You know, part of the the whole concept too was that you know, we were doing all that work ahead of time. The infrastructure was already there, um, especially when it comes to remote employment and uh, teleworking. We already had the multi-factor authentication processes in place. Everybody had their certs. New people were coming on board, and we were looking at new ways to to get them their um, multi-factor authentication capability instead of saying let's just you know depart from standard operations and respond knee-jerk, we actually relied heavily on the processes and protocols we had in place. And I'd have to give it, you know, I'm the, the, the CISO, and I have to say that, you know, the ops team is in that infrastructure is just incredible and the partnership there. Um, you know, uh, I see uh, Lynette Cheryl's on the line. She, you know, she, her and I were working even before, you know, midsummer about what can we do about partnering and increasing the visibility around telehealth and where we can find bandwidth and find how can we improve our numbers. So these things were already in work. So when when the time came, it was easy for us to just adjust our our approaches and still maintain the the same capabilities or the same confidence in our our infrastructure and our personnel uh, through authentication as well. Yeah, you got to remember too, just the velocity of change that was occurring during the height of the pandemic. Our motto was basically, let's stay ahead of demand, no matter what the demand was. If it was the telehealth visit issue, we wanted to make sure that we had, uh, no matter what the circumstances were, sufficient bandwidth to support this rapidly growing uh, demand on the infrastructure. The cloud helped, the infrastructure upgrades helped. But keep in mind, during April to June, we onboarded 96,000 new employees to help support our COVID response. These are contractors new and, and new VA employees, and we had to provision them. Our whole focus, and I, I recall, uh, I forget the exact number of nurses, but it was well over 100 that were going to show up in Chicago over the weekend, and we found out about it on a Tuesday or Wednesday, and we were able to get those devices provisioned and get them productive day one. And that was our, our whole motto along the line. And I will tell you, too, we also took delivery of a hospital uh, in the middle of the pandemic. We had to deploy uh, circuits at the uh, Baylor University uh, Hospital or Baylor Medical uh, donated a a hospital to the VA that we had to get up and running and equipped. And we had two weeks to do it. Normally, provisioning of circuits takes around 90 days. We did it in 13. We We got the circuit deployed. We got the building, you know, wired and set up so that we could actually have it function as a VA facility was an absolutely amazing partnership between VA and our, our, our industry partners in that particular deployment, but as well as ensuring that we were able to get access to those 225,000 laptops and those 100,000 phones that we had to get deployed to all these people that we were onboarding to support the, the pandemic response. It was, it was nothing short of, of magical how everybody came together and if you don't think that government agencies can can be flexible and agile and and rapidly deploy, this is a a prime use case that we should be able to disabuse you of that notion because we were able to accelerate the plans that we had for digital transformation by at least two years by living through. Now I don't recommend pandemic as a forcing function or a black swan event as a forcing function, but I think we did a pretty admirable job of of again staying ahead of demand responding so that when anybody turned on a, a switch, they had they had the signal, they were able to move the ones and zeros that they needed to to uh, to accomplish mission. So it wasn't just about accomplishing mission, but it was really about, you know, measurably improving 
our, our mission and operational performance as a result of this pandemic. So uh, it's really a good news story. Adam Patterson, government CIO. Thank you, Dan. Um, this is a, a bit more of a cybersecurity question and potentially more for Mr. Cunningham, but we've seen, it looks like with the evolving threat landscape, an increase in the both sophistication and frequency of ransomware attacks that, from my understanding, tend to overwhelmingly target medical systems. Uh, and in light of, you know, VHA's, you know, obvious import and just the sheer scope of patients, um, I'd imagine this, this might be somewhat of a concern. What uh, measures has VA taken uh, recently to uh, help kind of protect against and prevent, you know, the severity of uh, possible ransomware attacks? You know, ransomware in itself uses a lot of the same standard uh, attack vectors. You know, they get in, they upload malicious software, uh, they exploit it, and then for some sort of gain, in this case, to encrypt your drive and then hold it for ransom vice X, X filling information. So the techniques are there. There's just a little bit of a, an adjustment on that. So a lot of it goes back to just the basic principles that we've, we've always been working on about knowing who's on our network. That goes back to multi-factor authentication as a strong um, a deterrent and in, in preventing uh, ransomware. Know what's going on on your network. That's the other issue about uh, are we monitoring? Are we looking for indicators of compromise? Are we looking for those known uh, indicators that that would show that we have an, a, an active agent on our network? And then, so that also includes uh, knowing what's on your network. And I would include that being that we make sure the equipment that we have on our network is ours. The software is is ours. We're not allowing uploads. Uh, we're we're limiting who can install, uh, where can they install, and then more importantly is those backup capabilities. And collectively, as we look at uh, our network. It is very federated and, and lots of subnets, so it's not as easy as just you get one and everything else rolls back. So we're, we have a, you know, a multi-layered approach in, in protecting that. And it really just goes back to strong cybersecurity principles that we've been using for many, many years. We have to take a break. You're listening to an excerpt of a press conference the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Information and Technology held last week. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt from a press conference the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Information and Technology held last week. The participants in that media roundtable were Dr. Neil Evans, the Chief Officer for Connected Care, and who is performing the delegable duties of the Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and CIO. Todd Simpson, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for DevSecOps. Charles Worthington, the Chief Technology Officer. Paul Cunningham, the Chief Information Security Officer, Paul Brubaker, the Deputy CIO for the Account Management Office, and Luanda Jones, the Deputy CIO in the Office of Strategic Sourcing. Hey, thanks for doing this. Real quick, I just wanted to understand, for the last 20 plus years, VA has been trying to address some cybersecurity challenges. It's been considered a material weakness from the uh, Inspector General. How have you used the pandemic and how have you addressed these challenges around material weaknesses? Uh, I hope Paul maybe could address this because I know this is something you guys have been working on. I know former CIO Laverne Council have put out an enterprise security strategy several years ago, I think 2015. How has the pandemic, how has some of those lessons you've learned from the pandemic transferred over to your cybersecurity strategy to address the balance of risk versus effectiveness and efficiency? Well, I think there's a, you know, a couple of things to, to think about there is one, you know, 20 years ago, they were looking at very, a, a very small section of, uh, of VA. And over the years, uh, you know, the decision was to look at all the systems. So 
you know, as we kind of look at um, IG and, and their scope has changed, uh, so has the number of um, users, uh, the number of endpoints, the complexity of our systems, and even the reliance on, on that technology. So it really is an orchestration of uh, working with IG as they come in to, to make sure their expectations of, you know, you know, one finding of, of one thing, does that mean it's systemic of the greater department? And we definitely appreciate their, their honest candor of where we can improve and we're always working on, on getting those done. Along those ways, we also re- recognize that there's a certain amount of risk that in order to get the mission done. And I don't think that was really understood maybe 20 years ago the way it is certainly post-COVID. And so we're working on what's acceptable. If, for instance, if was it a breach in our protocol or was our protocol short and deficient? And those are the discussions that we're having both with OMB, IG, and our senior leadership. I can tell you that the material weakness is very important. We're very, you know, we're interested in, in getting those resolved, making sure we're getting a fair grade and, and being transparent when they come in and look. And the secretary, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Dr. Evans, those first two, you know, my first meeting with with both of them, that was the topic of conversation was the material weakness and and what is those bigger challenges that may not be as simple as remove and replace a, a piece of equipment. Actually, if I could just jump in for a quick follow up, Paul, what I was trying to get to is, is how you're using those lessons from the pandemic forward to, to balance that risk versus effectiveness question that seems to come up when it comes to cybersecurity. I think it goes back to you know what can we do from a, a strong risk management perspective. You can you can accept risk on face value. You can mitigate risk. Uh, you can deny the risk or not accept the risk, or you can transfer the risk. But the one risk you can't do, or one thing you can't do with risk, is ignore it. And that's where when we saw, especially during COVID, where we had to alter our protocols to to meet the requirement. Uh, we made sure all that was documented. We came up with review periods, you know, especially around um, you know some of the work we were doing with HHS around video conferencing, you know, risks that we didn't normally take before. We had to in order to make the mission work. And in there, we're now looking at those those risk acceptance and saying, is it a change of our protocol now because we we now understand the the risk a little bit better, or is this something that we're going to continue but we need to figure out how we're going to gracefully off-ramp the acceptance of that risk during this critical point. And, so documentation is critical. Yeah, Paul, you you know, you're spot on. And just to add to that, you know, specifically during the pandemic, we had to understand any supply chain risk or challenges. And so certainly as we took a look at the uh, equipment that we needed, we were partnering with our vendor community to understand those supply chain risks, partnering with the other federal agencies. So you know, as we look at uh, the lessons learned from that, I think really understanding the supply chain uh, risk area, it's huge in the federal government. Uh, and I think uh, the pandemic really blew it up in every aspect of all of our lives. I would also offer that um, the migration to the cloud is doing some risk mitigation and um, um, accelerating our security posture. We've um, moved 133 applications to the cloud. We have 82 in progress. Um, There's uh, roughly 400 in-house developed apps 
still floating around out there, but we've reduced our, our custom development from 57% from 2019 to 45% in 21. So as we continue to move toward that model, um, where I think we're um, we're getting that inheritance, we're getting more security through the SaaS products, through the COTS products, and through the cloud. We have to take a break. You're listening to an excerpt of a press conference the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Information and Technology held last week. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt from a press conference the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Information and Technology held last week. The participants in that media roundtable were Dr. Neil Evans, the Chief Officer for Connected Care, and who is performing the delegable duties of the Assistant Secretary for Information Technology and CIO. Todd Simpson, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for DevSecOps. Charles Worthington, the Chief Technology Officer. Paul Cunningham, the Chief Information Security Officer. Paul Brubaker, the Deputy CIO for the Account Management Office. And Lawanda Jones, the Deputy CIO in the Office of Strategic Sourcing. And I heard Aaron Boyd. As we talked about infrastructure uh, with regard to EHR and then more broadly at VA, uh, I want to talk a bit about 5G. Uh, we've been hearing that with the VA and also the DOD pilots with 5G, that they get, that there's been some success in individual use cases, you know, very specific things. But when it try, they try to uh, connect those things together, the interoperability just isn't there, whether it be between service carriers or even within the same service carriers for different use cases. So I wanted to ask you all how you're dealing with that at VA what issues you've seen with uh, individual 5G use cases and then trying to connect them to broader networks. Hey, this is Charles Worthington, Chief Technology Officer. We have begun sort of, as you mentioned, uh, piloting some 5G, especially with our colleagues in the health administration. We've begun piloting some use cases. I would say we're still early stages in those pilots to draw any real conclusions around the issue of interoperability that you're mentioning. You know, there's kind of two avenues that we're looking at with 5G. One is the the actual applications or use cases within our facilities that might benefit from the characteristics of those networks. Uh, and probably the most important characteristic that we've seen so far is the, the really low latency of those networks. Um, there's some really interesting use cases around augmented reality or computer vision, uh, sort of AR, VR, that depend on really, really low latency to make those visuals sort of sync up for the, the person using it. Uh, so that's been uh, interesting to experiment with. Obviously, the other kind of big driver on the 5G side is just making sure that we have good coverage inside of our facilities for people that want to use 5G devices. And so that's more of an infrastructure type of a, an issue that we're, we're looking at across different facilities and different strategies for that. So I'd still say it's still pretty early um, in terms of our understanding of any of the big issues. We're still kind of experimenting to see what the major opportunities are. Uh, although, obviously, it's a technology that we're tracking pretty closely. Another one I had was uh, back in February, VA IT leadership started working on a strategic planning ecosystem, uh, like a strategic plan of plans. I was curious how that was going, particularly in light of no official leadership. We've had acting CIOs in place. Dr. Evans just, just uh, took on that role. I wanted to ask where that process is and what the larger strategic planning process has been like for VA this year. Why don't we go ahead and jump in on that, if that's okay. So I think what you're referring to is our uh, approach to IT investment management across the operating administration staff offices and how we're really looking at strategic context to drive uh, our IT 
investments across the department to make sure that where we're spending money, that we're seeing measurable improvements in mission and operational outcomes. That's really the focus of, of our whole approach. So um, this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, we're giving ourselves about two and a half years to, to fill out all the portfolios, make sure that we've got um, detailed uh, strategy-driven plans um, that are meeting the objectives and the key results that our business partners uh, across the administrations and in the staff offices would like to see occur, um, and then figure out how the IT can enable those desired changes in, in, in mission and operational uh, performance. So we're in a, you know, kind of a crawl, walk, run approach to this. But I got to tell you, one of the things that was pretty clear, this goes back to the CARES Act experience, is in the almost $2 billion we got out of CARES Act funding, I think we've got a pretty clear line of sight from that spending to those measurable outcomes that we created. We're trying to, we're going to be applying that same rigor and discipline. And those of you who've been covering the space for a long time are probably familiar with things like Clear, Clear Cohen Act, the EGOV Act, FATARA, which was really all about making sure that the CIO's role and their authorities in the area of IT investment management were being exercised through capital planning and investment control, really tying those uh, those IT investments to outcomes. I think that's what you're referring to. And, and I think we're making a lot of progress in that space. Um, we've got a number of portfolios that we've already developed. We're, we kicked off yesterday our enterprise supply chain portfolio. Uh, where we're assessing our current state environment, because I think it's really critical for us to succeed as an organization to really understand the workflows, the the business process reengineering that takes place, and how we apply that technology. Now, that's not to say that we're going to be burdened by you know some overly bureaucratic process that was invented 20 years ago. I think we've got some approaches that we've built into our thinking and our strategy that will allow us to be pretty agile. Uh, to accommodate uh, near-term uh, investments in, you know, sort of new technologies. Because as you know, these this two-year budget planning cycle that we, two-plus-year budget planning cycle that we we like to use in the federal government flies in the face of Moore's Law, where, you know, technology capacity doubles every 18 months and the price gets cut in half. So we need to make sure that whatever process that we create that we are flexible, um, we can introduce uh, new technologies, um, and and we really focus on driving those measurable outcomes in mission and operational performance that are consistent with, you know, the president's management agenda that flow down to the department's strategic goals, secretary's strategic goals, and those goals that the operating administration staff offices have. We want to make sure that we're cascading those throughout the organization. Yeah, uh, thanks, Paul. And I would add one. One sort of other point, and that is, is that sort of regardless of who is in the seat that I currently sit in as the acting CIO, we have uh, um, within OIT a digital transformation strategy that has been in place um, and that that is something that we are consistently executing against. And it has really five key imperatives. The first is exceptional customer service. That's customer service to the VA employees who come to work every day to serve veterans. It's customer service by delivering technologies that support um, veterans as they engage with us and entrust their care to, to, to the Department of Veterans Affairs. Second imperative, IT modernization, driving IT and VA 
capability modernization through digital transformation, updating software and infrastructure um, to allow us to deliver on the mission. Third is strategic sourcing, transforming our procurement and acquisitions processes to make sure that we're selecting the right capability for each digital transformation requirement. Four is the IT workforce transformation, continuing um, to enhance our people and to work to drive a culture of continuous improvement when it comes to digital transformation, creating an environment where we can recruit the very best when it comes to IT professionals, something that and IT Professional Day was this week. Uh, we celebrated our workforce and we intend to continue to do so. Uh, and then the fifth is uh, seamless and secure interoperability, which really is about getting the right data in front of the right person to deliver care, making sure our systems are interoperable. Hey, this is Jason Miller again. Real quick, first, I was surprised that Paul didn't mention Klinger Cohen sooner, so that was really what took him so long. Actually, that was a little bit of a joke. Uh, actually, I wanted to talk about how the connection between the OIT office and non-technical people like the CFO, the, C the CAO, or the mission areas really happened and continues to happen since the pandemic. I heard some stories from VA during the pandemic, how those folks in the non-IT kind of senior leaders would say, oh, that IT thing, that, that's kind of important now. We didn't realize it as much as we do now during the pandemic. However, you used that realization, if you will, to really kind of continue to move along these five pillars that Dr. Evans just talked about. I'm going to let jump in on this. Yeah, because like, I think we all geek out on, you know, the five imperatives and on the tools and processes that let the let IT really deliver like this. But at the end of the day, what matters is the, the actual experience that our employees and that our veterans are having with our technology. And I think that uh, some of those tactics that we talked about before, including, you know, human-centered design, or that's just a fancy word for kind of empathy, empathy, listening to what is the problem, and then thinking, you know, how could we use technology to solve that problem? So, you know, a couple examples of, of what you mentioned, Jason, about the, the problems that our, our business partners were experiencing, especially in the early stages, you know, veterans had a ton of questions about the pandemic, uh, about the, the virus, and also about how it was impacting their care. And so a lot of the VHA call centers were getting really just slammed. And so we really quickly, you know, heard about that problem by talking with our business partners really every day. The, the agency was talking about COVID together, all parts of it uh, daily at that point. And, you know, that allowed us to kind of quickly think, okay, how could we maybe help these call centers uh, solve that problem? which included upgrading the actual call center you know, capabilities themselves, but also led us down this path of uh, creating the agency's first chatbot, which took some of the most common questions that we were hearing that our call center colleagues were telling us that veterans were calling about and making it easy for veterans to access that information uh, from the chatbot. And so that went from kind of an idea to something that was put into production in, I think, about five weeks. And so far, that, that chatbot has answered over 140,000 questions which, you know, you think of that as, you know, likely would have been a phone call. So every time we can save uh, a phone call, that frees up the, the staff to help somebody with a more complicated problem. Uh, another one of my favorite examples of the, the whole response was um, as the VHA facilities were trying to figure out how to operate safely at the height of the pandemic, um, they were asking screening questions and still do uh, at the front door for, for people that come in, just making sure that if anyone's feeling symptoms, that they're uh, brought to a place where they can be further screened, further assessed. Uh, obviously, for our VHA staff that are coming and going from these facilities every day, that was uh, becoming a pretty burdensome process to have to wait in this line and answer the same questions. 
uh, one of our local medical centers uh, basically identified that this is a good problem that software could have solved and built a little tool that let their employees answer the screening questions and just flash their, you know, flash the phone. Um, and we heard about that, uh, that one medical center had invested in, and we quickly grabbed that, uh, kicked the tires on it, and scaled it to be something that the entire VA could use. And that one kind of went from this pilot that a medical center had created to an actual live application uh, that every medical center could use with, you know, with the screening questions that had been kind of vetted through the actual sort of formal uh, VA main uh, COVID-19 task force um, and was deployed to uh, the whole field. Uh, that, that screening tool has been used over 17 million times now. Um, so, but it's really cool to think that, that, you know, it started off as just this one local pilot at the Durham Medical Center to something that's now been used 17 million times, uh, really just because the IT teams were so closely embedded with our staff. In, in that case, it was actually our field staff in the Durham Medical Center that told, you know, the headquarters office about this innovation. And I, I'm really proud of our team for hearing that and saying, that's a great idea. Let's scale it instead of well, you know, that wasn't in the two-year plan, so, you know, here's the here's the entry point, right? Uh, that's the the agility that we're really trying to emphasize with, with all of the uh, strategy and tools that we talk about. Uh, at the end of the day, though, it's about making uh, an experience really delightful uh, for veterans um, and for our staff. Oh, yeah, there's, uh, Paul's got his, uh, his screener. Yeah, that I, was I when I went to one of the facilities on October 29th last year. But it was amazing. You just flashed this and they'd let you in. It's good to know that, Paul, because you're in the office next door to me, too. Um, uh, but, you know, that really gets down that gets down to it. Right. I mean, when we boil it down to Charles's point, strategy is important, um, but we're here to serve veterans. Right. And part of that is delivering a delightful experience. It is it is using the knowledge base that exists here in I.T. to come up with solutions that move the needle, that deliver real value, that solve real problems that are happening every day, um, uh, that that staff in the field and veterans are trying to work through. And that's really the overarching mission that this team is, is, is aiming to, to solve. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt of a press conference of the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Information and Technology held last week. The participants in that media roundtable were Dr. Neil Evans, the Chief Officer for Connected Care, and who is performing the delegable duties of the Assistant Secretary for Information Technology and CIO. Todd Simpson, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for DevSecOps. Charles Worthington, the Chief Technology Officer. Paul Cunningham, the Chief Information Security Officer. Paul Brubaker, the Deputy CIO for the Account Management Office. And Luanda Jones, the Deputy CIO in the Office of Strategic Sourcing. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Any workout, any mood, any time. That's what the Peloton Tread is all about. From interval runs that motivate you to go the extra mile, power walks that work up a sweat, rolling hill hikes for you to enjoy, and full body boot camps to hit your goals. 
plus thousands of workouts that go beyond the tread. Strength programs, core classes, yoga, Pilates, and even boxing. Everything you need on and off the Peloton tread. Experience it all for yourself with a 30-day home trial. Learn more at OnePeloton.com.